Have you ever asked yourself, am I a bad therapist? Well, you're in the right place. I'm Allie Joy, licensed professional counselor and board-certified art therapist. And I'm Katherine Escare, a clinical psychologist, and this is Am I a Bad Therapist? Join us each week for stories from behind the closed therapy door. You'll hear experiences that made us ask, am I a bad therapist? Including bloopers, jaw droppers, and other difficult moments that normalize the unique struggles of modern day therapists. This is a space with no experts, no gurus, and no hierarchies, just humans sitting in similar chairs. And while we're not the gatekeepers for good and bad therapy, because we're bad therapists too, we are here to shine a light on the difficult decisions therapists face on a daily basis and to normalize that mysterious gray area of clinical practice that no one wants to talk about. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We don't often think about the perils or the hazards of being a therapist, but one big one is vicarious trauma. And Jenny's going to share her experience of vicarious trauma from being a therapist. I know. And I feel like we talk about burnout a lot, different topics, subjects, things come up. But this is, I think, the first time we're talking about it on the podcast here. And it's really important that we do talk about it because the work we do can lead to that vicarious traumatization. And I think for myself, when I think about it, and part of our message today, we learned from Jenny is talking about our support systems and how important they are because it can trickle into our lives, trickles into our sessions. I know for myself, the one of the biggest pieces of my support system is the Teletherapist Network, which you know we all love. It's how Catherine and I met. It's how this podcast came to be. But I think the message is finding your people, finding yeah. people you're aligned with who understand what you're going through and you talk about it because we are so tempted to keep it inside or maybe not even recognize that we're going through vicarious trauma. So today's episode is much needed, so important, and we hope you all take away just that reflection for yourselves and ask yourself, like, am I dealing with this? Like all of our episodes, this episode is not a substitute for therapy itself, clinical consultation, or ethical guidance. All right. This is episode number 49 of Am I a Bad Therapist? Let's get into it. Jenny, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I cannot wait to talk with you ladies today. Oh, we're so excited to hear your story because it, it is one that we have not talked about yet. But before we get into it, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I am a psychologist by training. I was actually trained as a child psychologist um, and now work primarily with adults, but I have always done trauma work. Um, and so it, it just is, it's the thing that I'm most passionate about when it comes to my clinical work. And I love, I get so much 
um, fulfillment out of really seeing people be able to recover from trauma and be able to rebuild after their world has been totally shattered. And so I currently practice all telehealth um, and I work primarily with adults and I provide supervision to psychology interns as well and I supervise them on a lot of kiddo stuff so I still have my hands and feet and kind of both like across the lifespan um, but that's kind of what I'm doing right now clinically. We love that and it plays a big part into your story so why don't you share with us what made you question if you were a bad therapist? Yeah. So, um, so this, so I got licensed, let's see, 2015 was when I was officially licensed. And right after that, so I was, um, so in psychology, you have to like match for your internship and then you have to do a postdoc and all that stuff as a psychologist. And um, after my postdoc, I was really lucky that I got a faculty position at the institution that I was working at. And when you work in, you know, at a medical center, they have to pay for your salary somehow. And they were like, well, hey, we need someone over at the trauma center, like the hospital, um, to work with the survivors of traumatic injury. And it ended up being a good fit for me because I also was skilled in doing research and all of that. So all that backstory to say I got thrown into working with survivors of traumatic injury, whereas I had always worked with kids. I had just finished two years of training in infant mental health and working with zero to five. (laughs) And now all of a sudden I was working in a level one trauma center at the bedside with people who had gone through all the things. And... I'm I'm the kind of person that like I am up for that challenge. Like I'm like, okay, let's go, let's do it. Um, but when I started, I was taking over for another psychologist and it was a baby program. Like it was just me. I was working with the consult liaison psychiatrist, and then I had a couple psychology interns that I was supervising, but really I was doing the work all by myself. Mm-hmm. And so I was like baby psychologist. Um, pretending like I knew what I was doing, <laughs> overcome with imposter syndrome, and and doing this really, really difficult work by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, on one hand, I like definitely had moments where I was like, this is so cool. I feel like a total badass. And it was like really empowering. But a lot of the times I was floundering and I started to, I didn't even realize that I was just like pushing all of this stuff down and trying to push away all the traumatic injury stuff that I was seeing um, until it was like, it just like came at me like a wrecking ball um, and started to interfere in my daily life, like in my personal life. Um, And that was when I really started questioning like, oh my God, am I cut out for this? Am I, am I not good enough? Am I a bad therapist? Wow. Oh my gosh. So you went from children and infants and then got thrown into traumatic injury. And I just have to ask what, I mean, what did that look like when, when this vicarious trauma started showing up in your life? What did other people around you notice or could have noticed that looked different than Jenny prior to this, this, uh, this job? Yeah, so there's sort of like two parts of my answer. So one was some of my own awareness. Um, 
eventually. And that's, again, when I got, like, slapped across the face with it. So... The city that I was in, it's has a lot of violence. We had a lot of gunshot victims, lots of car crashes, like, and that's what I was exposed to every day at work. Like every day there were new gunshot victims. And I have this really clear memory of um, getting out of an Uber with my best friend at one of our favorite festivals. We are like dressed up, like we are like ready to go and getting out of this Uber. And I was like, oh my God, I am going to get shot. Like that was the first thought out of my head. I'd lived in this city for like four years at this point. And I knew that it was dangerous, but I never like had this, these moments of hypervigilance and, and true hyper arousal. And so that retrospectively, I now realize it was much more of like a secondary traumatic stress response because vicarious trauma is kind of like the tip of the iceberg when it comes to a lot of this stuff. And it had gotten so bad Mm -hmm. that I was experiencing a lot of secondary traumatic stress, which looks kind of like PTSD. Um, And so that was a big moment for me because it was interfering with things that I love to do, like with activities and relationships. But even before that, there was a lot of stuff that I was kind of I now know is intentionally pushing it away. Um, and I didn't learn about the fact that I was pushing it away until I got an email from my then boyfriend, now husband, who is a jazz musician. <laughs> and he sent me his Google results, which were, I don't remember exactly what he searched, but basically he like Googled how to help my trauma psychologist girlfriend. Oh, <laughs> it was just like total like lay person like terminology oh. of just like how do I help my Trump psychologist oh, grasping at straws trying to help you that's so sweet and thoughtful it is but I was pissed when I <laughs> let me tell you because it had all these search results about vicarious trauma and I was like screw you like I teach at the hospital about vicarious trauma like who are you to try and tell me about this this is my job and so it, but it was like that defensive side of me because I was really afraid that I wasn't cut out for the work that I was doing a bad job and that I was a bad therapist. And so I'm so grateful that I and and he and I can laugh about it now, but I was not happy to receive that email. I just love that response. I know I do too. It's so funny because in, like you said, in retrospect, we can laugh about it. Like, oh my God, it's so sweet. But in the moment there is that defensiveness because like you said, and I feel like this, I also feel this personally of like, yeah, we, we learn about this. You were teaching about it. We talk about it. It's like, I'm not dealing with this. Like I'm not, but we are, we are, Mm -hmm. we definitely are. So you had that moment of defensiveness um, initially. How long did it take you to maybe be like, "Mm, Maybe I am dealing with vicarious trauma. (laughs) I think that ultimately I was able to sort of accept it pretty quickly because I I think I did know that I was pushing it away. Um, And so also like little interesting tidbit, we were dating long distance. And so when you date long distance, like all you have is talking a lot of the time. And so we actually had pretty good communication. And so it was him opening the door to say like, Jenny, like, 
I see how tense you are. I see how irritable you are. I see, I notice that in our conversations, like you are, you're shut down. You're not even wanting to like, tell me about your day. And I'm not, I'm not the kind of therapist that I talk about my work anyway. I, I, I just don't like to do that. HIPAA aside. Um, but like he could tell that I was pulling back and isolating. And so now those continue to be red flags for me with VT of mm. irritability and isolation. Um, but at the time, again, like we are so good at protecting ourselves. All humans are right. And our brains naturally go to avoiding stuff like this. And especially as therapists, mm -hmm. because we're told that we're not allowed to be affected by this work. Supervisors tell us like, oh, well, I guess you need to do some of your own work if X, Y, and Z is bothering you. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that message, but it often is delivered in these ways of like, oh no, you, you can't be, you can't be bothered. You need to buck it up and suck it up. And so I had to really then confront that and, and figure out like, okay, how much of this is a normal natural response to the fact that I am like in ICU rooms every day versus like, and, or like combined with needing to make sure that I am taking care of my needs and addressing the way that this is affecting me. And how did you, when, so once you came to the realization, what did you do? Because I can imagine, you know, when you accept the fact that this is impacting you pretty negatively outside of work, I mean, I'm thinking I'm putting myself in your shoes and I might have a, a whiplash reaction of, okay, I'm quitting or something like that. What did you do once you came to accept that, oh, this is impacting me? So... <laughs> In some ways, I feel like I was just kind of lucky um, because I I totally agree that like my initial reaction was to sort of overwork my like uh, not self care but like overwork to prove that I was that I could do it that I was good enough, and certainly I was aware of like self care stuff that was helpful for me. But what ended up happening soon around then was we got a grant we had submitted for a grant and we got it and i was able to hire an incredible lcsw who is still one of my dearest friends and um having a colleague to do the work with made a bigger difference than anything else. So again, like I was doing this essentially by myself. Like I had the psychiatrist who, you know, he was great, but he was doing his own thing. And I had students and that was not a support system for me in doing this work. And I was developing relationships with people in the hospital, but it's hard to do on your own too, like in a big hospital. And so once we hired this LCSW, um, we started to have really open conversations about vicarious trauma. It sort of was an intentional like onboarding process that I did with her of like, okay, we're going to schedule out this time each week to talk about cases as consultations so that we can be supporting each other. And through our, just like our combined efforts and personalities and stuff, we're both very outgoing. We started to sort of like bring more people into these experiences. And through that community building, which just sort of kind of happened and snowballed in a really positive way, um, this job became like truly the 
coolest, most awesome job that I've ever had. And I only left because I moved cities to then come be with my now husband. Um, That is the only reason that I left that job because I loved doing that work. It was so fulfilling. It taught me so much about myself as a clinician and how to be a human (laughs) as a clinician. Um, and, and I'm just so grateful for those experiences, but if it wasn't for the community that we were able to create first kind of by accident and then through intentionality, I don't know that I would have the same view on that job as I do now. I love how much that progressed though, from this like really new, scary thing where you were literally questioning, like, can I do this? Like, am I cut out for this work? And kind of having it transform into that, like such a great experience, learning wise, building community, making connections, like that's the best like progress in a story that we could ask for. And we talk about this a lot on the podcast in general, like how important it is to have our supports in place. And that consultation is so valuable because so many therapists like later in our careers like might, you know, put it off or might not do it as often, but we still need it. It doesn't mean we're bad therapists because we still need consultation. Like we need consultation because the work we do, like you're saying, we can't really bring it home. We can't really, you know, necessarily talk about the pieces of it. So we need people in our lives who understand and kind of know what we're going through. And I'm still in a consultation group with this social worker. Yeah. <laughs> she lives in Miami now. She was in Louisville. Her her husband is in the Coast Guard. Um, and we meet monthly in a, in a in a consultation group together. It's amazing how like real relationships can get started through those consultations. And like you can meet people from all over the world or staying connected across distances and time zones. And um, I think being a therapist now, we have the opportunity for more supports than we have ever had before. And it is up to us to take advantage of them. And I love how you did that. You recognize that when you experience vicarious trauma and it starts impacting you, the two big ways that you notice first are isolation and irritability. But that isolation piece, um, that is something that you could preemptively work work to prevent from happening, right? And that consultation group should prevent you from isolating yourself and call you out if they see you doing that. Well, and I think that that is a really important piece of it is having conversations with people and essentially giving people permission to call you out because whether it is, you know, my partner or a dear friend or a colleague, especially when it comes to stuff like vicarious trauma or whether we like as clinicians are maybe coping with something like depression or anxiety, whatever it might be, um, we're not socialized to call people out on that stuff. And I get why, but it, it leads to even more isolation. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's been a big, um, piece of, for, of ongoing communication with my husband and with other people that are kind of in that inner circle for me of like, when you see me doing these things and overworking now is yeah. another one that I'm very aware of. Um, when you see me doing these things, please, like, can we talk about it? And even giving them some language of how to bring it up so that I don't, you know, like, turn around, like, who the hell are you to tell me X, Y, and Z and send me your Google search? Delivery is important. I'm still working on that. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Delivery is important. Let's pause here for a quick ad break. 
Jane is an all-in-one practice management software that can help you manage your practice with a suite of features that make it easy to meet with individuals, couples, families, and more. Here on Am I a Bad Therapist, we know that two of the most important things to us as therapists are confidentiality and our time. Thankfully, Jane understands that reliability and security are very important parts of running a private practice. Jane's cloud-based software is accessible wherever you have Wi-Fi, and their team is always ready to lend a helping hand. Jane is HIPAA and PEPITA compliant, and your data is stored safely in the country you practice in. So no matter where or how you practice, Jane's always with you in the most secure and helpful way possible. Not only does Jane help us protect our clients, but they help us protect our time too with features like calendar syncing, note templates, online booking, and they have automated reminders and workflows. Which you know we love on Am I a Bad Therapist? And you can learn more at jane.app slash mental health. You can also mention the code BADTHERAPIST for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Hey, listeners. It's Catherine here. And I'm coming to you today because Ellie's not the best at bragging on herself. And I want to remind you all that she has an incredible resource available for free at our website, cccs.care. Allie's Creative Intervention Library is full of easy interventions that even non-art therapist clinicians like me can use with clients of all ages. Every intervention has a list of materials, an entire process video where you watch Allie doing it, and a written description and steps so you can follow along at home. Plus, she even has a list of diagnoses that might find this creative intervention helpful. So if you want to access a totally free library of interventions for when you feel stuck with clients, check out Allie's website cccs.care and sign up for free today. By the way, the number one support for those of us asking ourselves, am I a bad therapist? Are clinical consultation groups. If you don't have one yet, join us on the Teletherapist Network for unlimited peer consultation groups, including a lot of different specialty groups like clinicians of color, LGBTQ+, couples counseling, EMDR. And of course, Creativity in the Clinical Room hosted by me, Allie. Plus masterclasses, media leads, and everything else you need for an ethical, modern clinical practice. Join us at teletherapistnetwork.com. Well, let's loop back to the show. Well, I think it speaks to too, like like you're saying with this intentional community building, it's so important to find your people because I think yeah. that's another part. Like even before early on in my career, I would attend these like consultation groups in my state here in Connecticut and I just never felt connected to them. Like I never mm-hmm. felt like any of the providers were on the same page. I was like, I'm really not connecting here. I don't feel like we practice in the same way. And I was like, but I don't know what to do. Like these are the consultation yeah. groups I know of. And then thankfully I found the Teletherapist Network and actually this podcast exists because of a consultation group because that's how Catherine and I met. But it made such a difference in my personal life clearly and in my professional life as well because I finally found other providers who I felt like I clicked with. Yeah. And it's great that that we have the resources now where you, if, you know, I live in a small state here in Connecticut, mm-hmm. I wasn't finding providers I was really clicking with at that time. I could find some in other states and who mm-hmm. I consider very close friends now, like Catherine and others who can call me out, do projects with. And again, it's made such a difference for me 
again, to be happier, I think, in my personal life, to not be taking things home with work. So I love that piece you're speaking to. And I really encourage your listeners to think about like finding your people mm-hmm. um, and searching for it and not just like settling maybe on something that's around Convenient you. Convenient or easy. Yeah. Because... Mm-hmm. I mean, I go back to the shopping analogy where like if I buy something on sale but never wear it, it's a complete waste, right? So mm-hmm. if you go and have your your easy or convenient people but you are not really benefiting from it, like why are you doing it? Like, what's the purpose? And it sounds like, Jenny, you really found a clinician you clicked with and I, I hope our listeners are taking this to heart that don't let that relationship go just because you yeah. move or you change jobs or because your life, like if you have that peer consultation connection that is so valuable especially when you consult with a a similar group or the same group for years they get to know your your clinical history and they can help tie in cases from years ago that you might not be thinking of so it's a really I, I can only imagine like I I commend you and like Uh, for continuing to invest in that relationship through the years, right? I can only imagine the value it brings to your life, the longevity, the return on investment. And we do, like we're talking about, have to really like foster and nurture those relationships. But it can feel almost like our clients when they're looking for a therapist, when we're looking for a space for ourselves, Mm -hmm. when we notice that we're feeling really alone, I think it can feel super overwhelming. And then you can just get to the point of like, I'm going to throw my hands up and say, screw this. And I'm just going to keep white white knuckling my way through. And and we can do that. Like, I know that I can white knuckle through a lot of stuff, but ultimately I am going to crash and burn. And that doesn't mean that I'm not good enough, that I'm not cut out for it. But when we don't when we are not able to find those spaces where we can be open and mm-hmm. honest mm-hmm. with ourselves and with other people, those crashes and burns are going to get mm-hmm. worse over time. And then we're going to burn out. And I view burnout as like the jumping ship, like mm-hmm. of like, oh my God, there's the life raft. Like I have to get out of here because there's nothing else I can do as opposed to like having supports around you that can either help you continue to thrive in your work or make grounded and and informed decisions about what you're going to do next as a clinician or in your career as a helper because diversifying our work is a really great way to manage everything that we carry and that we deal with Um, and doing that from a place of like knowing like oh I'm really excited about this decision as opposed to like oh my god I gotta like jump and run so that I can save myself. Absolutely. Now, I love this conversation where we're going, but I'm actually curious. It popped into my brain. I want to backtrack a little bit um, because you said that during this time you had interns and that Mm -hmm. you were able to find your colleague and that helped. Was there any self-disclosure? How did you talk about vicarious trauma with your interns at the time? What was that experience like with them? And then trying to navigate that like, well, I am supervising you, but I'm going through this. How did that play out? That's such a good question. And it evolved over time. So the first year I was, like I said, baby licensed psychologist, right? Mm -hmm. And so that imposter syndrome stuff was a lot. And so I I sort of was like trying to figure out how to walk the line of acknowledging with my interns, this is my first year doing this. That's not a secret. Y'all know that this is my first year as faculty. Um, And then like, well, but how do I be the you know, psychologist in charge and whatever. 
whatever. And so mm-hmm. I didn't do as much self-disclosure with that with that first year of interns that I worked with. Um, and I learned a lot from that. I almost said I regret that. I don't regret it, but I, I, I did learn a lot from it because um, I wasn't able to cultivate relationships on a personal or professional level with these interns that were as close as later relationships. And that those types of interactions with our trainees is so formative for them. And, and I actually am still in touch with trainees across the years. And now they're my colleagues, which is so cool. But I also can look at a lot of those relationships and be like, oh, yeah, we shared a lot more of ourselves together. And that's helped the longevity of our relationship across space and time. Um, Doing, like I said, I I did do a lot of teaching at the hospital about vicarious trauma. And actually, my colleague, the social worker, and I, we were asked to develop a hospital-wide wellness program. (laughs) And so we did lots and lots of stuff. And so that helped to also then open the door Mm -hmm. to talking about my own experiences of VT, both with the trainees and with other people in the hospital. And... Not only did that deepen and strengthen relationships, but it normalized it. Like, yeah, of course we are affected by this work. We're not impervious. We have brains, too, that go into survival mode and flip our lids and, like, all the things. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. That's amazing, too. Again, that progression there of, like, because, again, I think I would be very in a similar situation of, like, I don't know that I would have self-disclosed because there's that imposter syndrome and yeah. being fresh. Um, but then that developing into eventually creating this program from the hospital and normalizing it and talking about it. And it's just so, so important. Um, now, I'm curious. Uh, we always ask our guests, like, what advice would you give, you know, if they were experiencing something? But I was wondering if you would share, if you don't mind, some tips of how our listeners might identify that they're experiencing vicarious trauma. I know you shared a couple, but maybe some other warning signs you've noticed. Mm -hmm. And then what advice you might give if they felt like they were experiencing this in their career. Yeah, so I often recommend that people think about how this work can show up in four different areas of our lives, in our emotional, physical, relational, and occupational functioning experiences, whatever kind of, you know, adjective you want to put on that. Um, And I actually have a tool that I've made to help clinicians with this that I'm happy to share. Um, But it helps us go through and and really kind of sit down and take almost kind of like a 12 step, like super honest inventory. Um, and, And I do really encourage people to be open with themselves. Like they don't have to share this with anyone, especially not at first. But being more honest with ourselves is sometimes the trickiest part. And so asking yourself like, okay, am I more irritable or am I feeling really on edge? Am I constantly thinking about certain clients or certain client interactions? How's my sleep, right? Mm -hmm. How's my appetite? Like, am I sleeping more than usual? Am I having a hard time falling asleep because I'm thinking about stuff? Am I eating more than maybe I need to because it's a coping mechanism or less? Um, I also am very aware that a lot of the signs of of things like vicarious trauma can it can be difficult for us to name them because 
they kind of sound like symptoms that we hear in the DSM, right? But vicarious trauma, compassion fatigue, secondary traumatic stress, burnout, even they are not DSM diagnoses, nor should I think they, I don't think they ever should be because they are our natural responses. And so being able to name them. So then like physical stuff, um, am I calling in more? Like, am I taking more mental health days than I maybe planned that I had already like incorporated into my schedule? Am I truly getting sick more because my immune system is shot or I have stomach aches and headaches? Um, what are my relationships like? Am I like pushing people away? Am I maybe engaging more with people who are not super healthy for me because it's kind of like giving me some kind of a coping mechanism that maybe in the long term isn't the most helpful? Um, and then am I avoiding work? Am I overworking? Am I dreading work or even dreading sessions, clients presenting problems that I typically love? Those are all important things to think about in those four different areas. Um, but doing that from a place of, of allowing yourself to be honest, first and foremost, with yourself. I, I commend you for taking something that you experienced doing the research and then coming up with your own model to help other therapists. I just, as a systems oriented brain, I love how you systemized it. Like that's beautiful. And where, I think this is a great spot. You know, Jenny, first of all, we can't thank you enough for sharing your story, but if other therapists want to connect and learn more about burnout and what you experienced and the model you just shared, where can they connect with you? Yeah, so they can get, this is my vicarious trauma tracker, and Ooh. they can get it um, at my website, braveproviders.com slash VT tracker, and that'll take them right to it. And then, actually, Allie, I didn't answer the second part of your question of then what oh, do we yes, do about all of this, yeah. right? Well, I think the, the first cool step is to go to your about, website. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the cool thing about the tracker is, so there's a checklist, and then there is some encouragement to track VT over seven days to give you a snapshot of how it's ah. going and then using some steps to help you use that data that you track to decide okay what do I need because I can't sit here and tell anyone what they need to do about vicarious trauma or burnout whatever it might be that is something that we have to decide for ourselves mm -hmm. some general recommendations are start with the things that work we're not trying to recreate the wheel when we vicarious trauma is inevitable. We are empathic clinicians and mm -hmm. empathic humans. And so that means we're going to soak up stress and trauma and the things that we're helping our clients with. That doesn't mean that VT has to turn into something like burnout, though. However, oftentimes once we get that email of Google results, like we are already like way past just the point of inevitable VT. And so we're not, I don't want you to try and recreate the wheel. I don't want you to say, I'm going to go to yoga five days a week and meditate for an hour every night. Like mm, that's bullshit. That is not going to happen. And you are like setting yourself up for failure. Mm -hmm. So go with what works and mm -hmm. starting small and just getting back to basics. I think it's a great idea to think about two what are maybe things that you want to add in or things that could enhance some of those, the things that you already know work, but you don't need to start there, mm -hmm. right? Because that's just going to be overloading your brain and your prefrontal cortex. And let's go with the muscle memory that's already present. 
We love that. That's such valuable knowledge. Thank you for sharing that. And in addition to your website, is there anywhere else our listeners can find you? Yeah, so I do this work also inside of my community, the Brave Trauma Therapist Collective, which is where, um, just like you guys have been bringing up today, it's a it's a community for trauma therapists where we're able to talk about all of this stuff and show up in all of our all of our good, bad, and ugly, as I like to say. Um, and it's a space where, you know, we we both learn and we educate together, but we provide so much support. And just like you were talking about, like in terms of what it is like to have people follow you over time, Catherine, like mm -hmm. that really, really resonated with me because being able to give that feedback has been so incredible as not only the person who like kind of pulls the levers behind the curtain of brave, but as a member myself, cause mm -hmm. I get to benefit from it in our groups and, and all the support we give each other and to, to have a space where I know I can be provided feedback in a loving way. Um, and in a constructive way, that's going to help me to continue growing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we will link all of those in the show notes below if you want to connect with Jenny. So Jenny, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story. I know that vicarious trauma and the care that it requires therapists to engage in, um, which is well beyond self-care, um, you know, it needs to be talked about more. So just thank you so much for being so vulnerable, sharing your experiences and the incredible work that your experiences have led you to create for therapists. So thank you, Jenny. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. I, I think sharing our stories is so important and the platform that you have created for therapists to do that is is so powerful and and it's that normalizing piece of like we're not perfect and i'm so glad that we're not perfect and that we can talk about it in spaces like this oh, beautifully put thank you thank you we couldn't have said it better but thank you, thank you Jenny. <laughs> this has been amazing and that's it the og bad therapists Allie and Catherine are signing off for the week make sure to subscribe and leave us a review we pick a few lucky five-star reviewers to shout out and invite for a 15-minute consultation with the both of us to talk about anything on your mind. From clinical work to podcasting, we're game. Just make sure to leave us your name and location in the review. Are you a bad therapist and want to be on the show? Go to abadtherapist.com and tell us your story. Our podcast is produced and edited by my amazing husband, Austin Joy. He also created the music for our intro and outro. You can find this song, along with many others, on any music platform under the artist Air for Effect. And if you're a bad therapist starting your own podcast or wanting to level up the one you already have, contact Austin for his full suite of podcast and sound production services. You can find him on Instagram at Air for Effect. And don't forget, we're all bad therapists.